Hi, everybody. My name is Michael Millerman, and I'm going to read you something I wrote called Alexander Dugan and the Problem of Political Philosophy, beginning with this quote by Leo Strauss. It would be unworthy of us as thinking beings not to listen to the critics of democracy, even if they are enemies of democracy, provided they are thinking men, and especially great thinkers, and not blustering fools. When on February 24th of this year, Russian President Vladimir Putin announced the start of what he called a special military operation aimed at the denazification of Ukraine, there was again a demand, as there had been eight years ago during the campaigns in eastern Ukraine and Crimea, for insights into his grand strategic vision. Analysts, observers, and intelligent onlookers thus understandably expressed renewed curiosity in Alexander Dugin, the person once called Putin's chief ideological mastermind, whose other famous nicknames include Putin's Brain, Putin's Rasputin, and the most dangerous philosopher in the world. There are good reasons for turning to Dugin as a representative of the Russian position. Not, of course, the position of Russian liberals, but rather of those who believe in the strange rebirth of imperial Russia, as Andrew Sullivan phrased it, or Putin's thousand-year war, to use Michael Hirsch's phrase. We couldn't always call Dugin's perspective the pro-Putin position. He once authored a book called Putin vs. Putin to show that Putin was a man divided between two orientations, only one of which was properly, commendably anti-liberal. But we can call it that now that Putin has taken irreversible steps in line with Dugin's vision for Russia. As Ioana Zostek reported, asked if Putin reads his work, Dugin says, we read the same letters written in gold in the sky of Russian history. Dugin, recall, was one of the most ardent supporters in 2014 of the Novorossiya project, whose main aim was in effect precisely the kind of acquisition of territories in southeast Ukraine that we observe in the current military operation. He was infamously dismissed from his teaching position at Moscow State University after stating that his professional opinion was that Russia must kill, kill, kill those responsible for atrocities in Ukraine, an utterance that led to a student petition against him and eventually his removal. Dugin's unusually hostile attitude towards what he sees as the artificial Ukrainian nation-state goes back decades and extends to the present day, spanning a period that includes a book titled Ukraine, My War. In the first article I ever read about Dugin, the opening anecdote recounts how the Kremlin stood up for Dugin in 2007 when the Ukrainian government declared him persona non grata and banned him from entering the country for a period of five years, showing that both the dispute over Ukraine and the support of the Kremlin are an old story. Ukraine has always been a flashpoint for Eurasianism, the name of Dugin's ideology. Thus, when Russia and Ukraine collide, you could do worse than consult Dugin for the Russian perspective. Moreover, Dugin combines ideological animosity towards Ukraine with an intellectual sensibility determined to interpret ongoing events systematically through the lens of several academic fields. Thus, he's brought to bear on the analysis of the current war, both his geopolitical and ethnosociological theories, to each of which he has dedicated separate books. And these theories can help us as we try to understand the Russia-Ukraine conflict in terms of the return of history, or to grasp the ethnic nuances of Putin's account of the historical unity of the Russian and Ukrainian people. Similarly, Dugin's theory of a multipolar world is a powerful model for interpreting Russia's deliberate decisive break with American unipolarity, often described by Russia's own political elites as a turn towards multipolarity. Thus, even as it reflects a distinct Russian standpoint, Dugin's work still lets us see the broad contours of ongoing global changes at a theoretical level. 
He's always trying to express his thought in terms familiar to a Western audience. After having debated Francis Fukuyama on television in 2014, for instance, today he's responding to his articles and declaring this the age of Huntington. Other facts could be marshaled to justify the renewed interest in Dugan and the embarrassing excess of often unreliable overnight Dugan experts writing about him. Whatever the true nature of Dugan's disputed influence on the Kremlin is, Putin's foreign policy often lines up with Dugan's geopolitical recommendations. So his intellectually fashioned, interdisciplinary, anti-Ukrainian, anti-Westernism makes Dugan, if not an infallible, then at least an invaluable guide for those seeking basic reference points to help them understand the war and the world. Finally, we must add, to be fair, that his beard, meanwhile, lends its authority to his visage as the strange face of the enemy, a consideration that can sometimes outweigh the others. Dugan is the Russian other. Even this moderate defense of Dugan's timely relevance is likely to solicit unfavorable responses from those who see him in the worst light as a fascist, neo-Nazi crackpot. They fail to adhere to Leo Strauss's principle that it's safer to try to understand the low in light of the high than the high in light of the low. Since in doing the latter, one necessarily distorts the high. Whereas in doing the former, one does not deprive the low of the freedom to reveal itself fully as what it is. These critics often understand Dugan in light of the lowest and are oblivious to anything higher in him. Here, a problem arises that seems intractable. Dugan has been called a philosopher. And we regard philosophy as among the high things and the principal things. But Dugan is most often invoked, read, and criticized not as a philosopher, but, for the understandable reasons previously mentioned, as an activist analyst of Russian anti-Westernism. To try to recover a perspective on the high Dugan, as opposed to the low Dugan, is to risk incurring all the wrath of those who see only the lowest Dugan. To approach philosophy is inherently difficult, even under the best circumstances. To attempt to accomplish that feat through Dugan is nearly a suicide mission. And yet, when it can seem that it is the civilization around us that's on a suicide mission, we must perhaps risk more than we're accustomed to in order to save something greater than ourselves. Next quote, we show respect for a thinker, only when we think. Martin Heidegger. Imagine that someone knew nothing about Russia's war on Ukraine and the role Dugan has arguably played in fomenting and interpreting it. Imagine they did not know that Dugan has been called a Satanist and his Eurasianism a Satanic cult. And we can also suppose total innocence concerning the times when Dugan called liberalism Satanism and its supporters an army of hell. Imagine a situation, in short, from which we've abstracted a large set of statements, leaving by artificial design only the less polemical, less activistic, less ideological dimension of Dugan's thought. We must look to see what's there and whether it merits the uncomfortable task of quote-unquote apologizing for the other Dugan. Whether it puts us before the problem, not unique to Dugan, of the relationship between the high and the low in a thinker and in the world. For this experiment to work, we must imagine one more thing, that we read Russian, the language of the primary sources. 
We turn then to Dugan's online education portal, pydalma.tv, for initial guidance. Under courses, there are categories, economics, ethnology, sociology, anthropology, religious studies, culture, geopolitics, psychology, theater, alongside some unfamiliar themes like noomachia and the radical subject, which we pass over until we come to philosophy. Now, this is a kind of dramatization because, in fact, when you go to paidalma.tv, philosophy is the option already selected and hence, as it were, prioritized. So let's click through to the philosophy section and take a look. What do we see listed under the philosophy lectures? The doxes and paradoxes of time, metaphysics of temporality, philosophical myths, eschatology, Callipolis, platonic lectures and seminars, the phenomenology of the radical subject, reminding us again of this strange figure, now in the context of phenomenology and philosophy. And taking just the top four lecture courses, we stop at Aristotle's phenomenology, which is where we decide to click through to the course details and syllabus. What's discussed in this course on Aristotle's phenomenology? Well, let's see. Aristotle's rhetorical ontology, logos and rhema, phenomenology and its ontology, Aristotle against Plato and Democritus, appearance without materiality, the more and speech, doxa, as being in the world, Brentano in the act of intellect, Catholicism in Brentano, Husserl, Heidegger, the theology of Aristotle, thought versus consciousness, the false ontology of the modern natural sciences, three separate lectures on Dietrich von Freiburg's account of the act of intellect, the phenomenology of Hesychasm, Meister Eckhart, Heinrich Suzo, Johannes Tauler. Where's Ukraine? Where's Putin? Where's the Satanism of the liberal West? Where in that course catalog is the Lodugan? What's the meaning for us now of a lecture course like this in the context of what we believe we know about Dugan? Okay, so we're faced with this course on Aristotle's phenomenology and we're trying to square that course and the content of that course with our impression of the low Dugan, what we think we know about Dugan. So there are three possibilities, at least. First, the low Dugan has so tainted Dugan that we're not permitted to take another step in the direction of the high Dugan on principle. As I think, for example, Neil Rogoshevsky has argued. This is the book-burning and book-banning approach, sadly growing in popularity. And Dugan's books, by the way, as you know, are in fact banned for sale from Amazon. And he's been kicked off many social media channels, including YouTube, which is where I first watched his Aristotle course. So the first option says, no, the fact that Dugan ever said anything bad about Ukraine or Ukrainians means don't take another step further in his direction, period. The second option is to dismiss his lecture course as follows. So he talks about phenomenology. So he's read some Aristotle. So he's a Heideggerian. Who cares? There are many competent scholars who do that without supporting Putin and his war. Read them instead. And be careful reading Heideggerians anyway. Don't do it if you don't have to. If you must, read one of the safer ones. There's nothing distinctly interesting about Dugan's account. Avoid at all costs. That's not a hypothetical response. You can encounter it in the wild when hunting for Duganists, pro and anti. But the response is marvelously disingenuous. It presupposes what is to be shown, that we have understood 
the specific character of Dugan's exposition and can compare it intelligently to the alternative accounts. In other words, that we've done some thinking. Still, on the face of it, it's plausible enough that it passes in literate circles as an adequate approach to the problem and it leaves the door a little more open than the first approach does to those who can't help but be intrigued, tempted by emancipatory vice. And what of a third response? Suppose first that these lectures are good. Now by itself, that would be something. And two, that they're distinctly good in that they reflect an approach to the subject matter that's underrepresented or altogether missing in more common treatments of it. Now that would be more than something, wouldn't it? If the lectures on the phenomenology of Aristotle or phenomenological readings of Aristotle were both good and distinctly good, actually contributed something new to the conversation that you couldn't find somewhere else. Suddenly, we would be face-to-face, now in practice and not merely in theory, with the problem of the high and the low. And not only with that, but with the other problem equally inherent to the philosophical life, that we should be intellectually enriched by a political enemy. Maybe it's no wonder that lovers of philosophy sometimes have recourse to esotericism. The charms and the dangers are intense. Carried away by curiosity, let's peruse other courses for names, themes, topics, subjects, approaches, methods, and moods just in case. What do we find as we explore the other courses on Pydelma.tv? Jakob Bem, Paracelsus, Hegel, Schelling, Fichte, Evola. Uh-oh. We see courses on Russian political philosophy. Aha, that must be the low Dugan, right? Because philosophy can't be Russian. Dionysus, surely mystical claptrap. The metaphysics of gender. Is this Dugan the queer theorist? Seminars on Neoplatonism. No, it's too much. The door closes. This can't be philosophy. This can only be a kind of gutter ideology, right? But are we sure that we know the sole meaning of what philosophy is and can be? Has not Dugan himself made that very question a topic of inquiry, for example, in his book called Martin Heidegger, The Possibility of Russian Philosophy? Can we simply unsee what we saw now that our thoughtfulness has been solicited by a strange situation, especially those among us who learned from Leo Strauss that Heideggerian phenomenology, which Dugan's lecturing on in those courses, is, as it were, the portal that leads us from the crisis of modernity back to Aristotle and Plato, suggesting that there's more to what we've glimpsed of Dugan's Pydelma than meets the eye. Don't we, in fact, encounter in the high Dugan of this experiment what looks from one perspective like a similar project to Strauss's? Strauss writes about Platonic political philosophy. Dugan writes about political Platonism. Plato and Heidegger are of central importance for both of these philosophical supremacists, Dugan and Strauss. These and other similarities can't be ignored, and yet Strauss was the paragon of Socratic philosophical moderation, while Dugan has a reputation for political radicalism and Dionysianism. Whom do we honor when, as they press upon us, we flee from these concerns? Next quotation, everything is no omachia, Dugan. Russia's war on Ukraine seems to have refuted Strauss, who once wrote that the crisis of the West consists in its having lost its purpose. Has not the war 
redoubled the efforts of the West to fight for global freedoms and to lead the march of human progress and human freedom forward, goals that Biden said constitute the defining challenge of our time. The defense of freedom against authoritarianism thus appears to be the purpose of the West now more than ever, or at least again. Yet, as R. R. Reno argues in The Return of the Strong Gods, the post-war open society anti-authoritarianism implied in such an outlook is yesterday's affair. Today, more intense loves and deeper ties of solidarity than those offered by the weak gods of negative freedom are fighting for power across the political spectrum. Old gods are reawakening, waging war in heaven and on earth. For Dugan, political wars do reflect wars among the gods, but he subsumes the war among the gods to the wars of nous, hence that word we encountered earlier, noomachia, nous plus mache, the wars of nous or intellect, writing as follows, quote, wars between people, including even the most cruel and bloody ones, are but pale comparisons to the wars of the gods, titans, giants, elements, demons, and angels, and these in turn are but figures illustrating even more formidable and profound wars unfolding in nous. Thus, everything is noomachia. Noomachia is Dugan's term for the philosophical study of civilizational multipolarity. It's a kind of comprehensive superscience meant to understand how existential, bottom-up, and noological, top-down, elements intersect on the horizontal geopolitical plane, not just in Russia, but everywhere. The collected works of his Noomachia book series exceed 20 volumes that Dugan has nonetheless said are but a table of contents for the endless work involved in studying peoples and civilizations noetically. A few first steps toward genuine intellectual appreciation for a diversity that's not reducible to hair color, skin color, gender identity, and sexual preference. A multipolar diversity that pays homage to blossoming complexity. Strauss, to whom it's a good idea to return when trying to understand Dugan, once observed that the word culture originally implied cultivation of nature. A cultivated garden reaches its end when the lovely blossoms and fragrant blooms of plant nature, intelligently tended, are allowed to express their splendor, delighting our senses. By contrast, the modern concept of culture unmoored from nature is a later philosophical aberration, leading to the view that culture is any patterned activity whatever, so that it's possible to speak of gang culture, for instance. Culture then no longer means the garden's blossom. The term could suddenly apply equally well to the drunkard relieving himself on his cigarette in the dirt. Is Dugan's multipolarity the same as this uncultivated anything-goes multiculturalism? It would amount to a serious indictment of him if his philosophical analysis of civilizational multipolarity, his celebration of the blossoming complexity of human existence, was not more than a relativism justifying barbarism in general and Russian barbarism in particular. It is certainly possible to get the impression from Dugan that he uses relativism for the defense of Russian imperialism and lacks any classical notion of natural cultivation, excellence, or goodness, any notion of telos or perfection, of an absolute standard, like truth. For instance, in a 2016 BBC Newsnight interview, Dugan made the following claim, quote, Everything is relative, and we in Russia could use post-modernity in order to explain to the West that 
If any truth is relative, so we have our special Russian truth that you need to accept as something that maybe is not your truth. Unquote. And here we have a typical, almost sophomoric relativism invoked to say, you can't judge me because you have your truth and I have mine. Hardly a tenable thought for lovers of truth as something transcendent. Picking up on this problem, the interviewer interjects and asks Dugan whether the West needs to accept the Russian truth, even if it's not true. Dugan replies that, quote, if the truth is relative, that doesn't mean that truth doesn't exist. It means that absolute truth, one for all, doesn't exist, unquote. Now, I can imagine you rolling your eyes from here as you say to yourselves, the statement that absolute truth doesn't exist itself has the form of an absolute truth and is self-refuting. We can thus in good conscience dismiss Dugan as a crank and move on with our lives. If only it were so simple. Woefully dreadful forms of postmodern relativism have motivated many to recoil from overthinking truth. It's obvious what truth is. Science, math, and logic tell us. So we must respond to the postmodern left with a STEM-based thinking, a kind of Quillette scientism that dares to tell the truth about human anatomy to those who say men can be pregnant. That obviously does not go far enough for philosophers, theologians, or believers, however. STEM-based thinking cannot help us interpret Jesus Christ's assertion that he's the way and the truth and the life. It can't help with the virgin birth. And unless it starts to think in a new manner, it will be blocked from that body of writings that more than any in our time thematized the problem of truth for thinking. Heidegger's. Dugan called Heidegger the deepest foundation of the fourth political theory and has written several books about him, including lengthy sections dedicated to detailed expositions of Heidegger's thought on truth. Moreover, the methodological basis of Dugan's philosophical study of civilizational multipolarity is Heideggerian. To one who's aware of these facts, Dugan's BBC statement about postmodernism and the relativity of truth start to disclose a deeper meaning, no longer sophomoric. Each response to his remarks carries with it tacit answers to a set of implied questions. What is truth? What is being? What is the relationship between being and truth? Between being truth and language? What is a people? What is the relationship of truth and being to a people? What does it mean to be absolute? When he claims that truth is relative, what is Dugan saying it is relative to? What does it mean for truth to exist but not absolute truth? It's presumptuous to believe that the answers to these and similar questions are self-evident when approached as they must be in this case on the basis of Heidegger's thought. Now, would Dugan have needed to go into foundational Heideggerianism at all? Would he have needed to write tens of volumes on civilizational multipolarity? Would he have needed to lecture on Böhm, Eckhart, Tauler, Paracelsus, and others? Would he need to have done all of that and more, merely to provide a cover for Russian imperialism? Or is it at least as likely, and in fact more likely, that in these inquiries Dugan provides access to something genuinely thought-worthy, which transcends the issue of Russian imperialism, and is not as easily dismissible with an eye roll into quick judgment as we might have initially hoped. Strauss, who articulated so memorably the interpretation of culture as the cultivation of nature, acknowledged one thinker above all as posing a significant intellectual challenge to the idea of nature 
and in fact to modern liberalism. Heidegger. So we have a strong Straussian justification for a philosophical interest in Dugan. It's undecidable for now after such a brief experiment whether Putin's Rasputin is Russia's Leo Strauss or Russia's answer to the challenge of Leo Strauss. What is clear, however, is that reducing Dugan to his narrowly political relevance and ignoring the philosophical Dugan leaves us unable to judge as well as we could both the meaning of Russia's war and the broader noomachia implicating the modern West and calling our future into question. Okay, that was a reading of this draft essay I have called Alexander Dugan and the Problem of Political Philosophy. I'll post a link to it if I can. Hopefully you got something out of that. Thank you for your time and attention. See you in the next video.